You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. Are you building a new office? Looking for a cool style for your restaurant? Or maybe you're just trying to nab a conversation piece for your home or apartment? Industrial Artifacts is the place for you. They've got more than 20,000 square feet chock-a-block with vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects, like antique railroad station sconces, a Wurlitzer electric piano that I would absolutely die for, and a mid-century oxblood leather couch that is so classy it would forcibly eject me if I ever dared try to sit in it. Whether you're outfitting a hip new bar or searching for the ultimate work desk or fabulous kitchen table, Industrial Artifacts has you covered. I dare you, I positively dare you to go to industrialartifacts.net without finding some dreamy new home or office decor to obsess over. It can't be done. They can deliver worldwide and even personally to those who live in Chicagoland. Hey, that's me! So, go to industrialartifacts.net today and start drooling over the coolest one-of-a-kind items out there. Listen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campancita. Do you recognize this? Well, give it another minute. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. You got it now? This is the beginning of maybe the most famous, or I suppose infamous, event in media history. At this time, the Mercury Theater on the air had been performing for just under four months. So far, the show was made up mostly of audio dramatizations of classic literature, Dracula, Treasure Island, A Tale of Two Cities, Jane Eyre, Count of Monte Cristo. Now a tune that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. All pretty straightforward radio plays, distinguished only by the talent behind them. But at 8 p.m. on Sunday, October 30th, 1938, Orson Welles was about to try something very different. Instead of a normal adaptation, he and John Hausman and Howard Koch had cooked up a, let's say, more immersive form of storytelling. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. A variation on H.G. Wells' seminal novel, The War of the Worlds, that would bring a Martian invasion straight to the fields of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, and then march it right through the whole of the world, burning us down as it went. You probably know what happened next. Or think you do, at least. Because it's one of the more notorious and delicious stories of the 20th century. But what you might not know 
is that the events of that evening were just one blip on a centuries-old series of misunderstandings that stretched far back into our past and even straight through to our present. October 30th, 1938, wasn't the first time that humankind was turned wrongly around by our planetary cousin. And it wasn't the last, either. For this, our season finale, we're going to take a look at that red light in the night sky, and a closer look at the ways we've managed to look at it wrong. And even how we might be getting it wrong right now, today. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Is There Life on Mars? Act 1. What's that? Imagine for a second that you're the first person to ever look up at the night sky. What do you see? In the still-pitch shroud of pre-civilized darkness, there's a lot to note. The moon, of course, in whatever phase you find it. Galactic clouds, who knows what the hell those are. Asteroids streaking across the firmament. Mostly, though, there are stars. Thousands and thousands of stars. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some are brighter, some are dimmer. But there are a few that stick out, more intense and luminous than all the rest. And one of them looks red. If you followed up with those conspicuously bright stars night after night, as nearly every human civilization ever recorded did, you'd soon notice something else that set them apart. They move. Five of those big lights transit across the heavens, forwards and backwards, up and down. There's something about these five dots in that huge inky soup that makes them, somehow, different from all the rest. If you're an ancient Greek, you give them a name to separate them out. Planet. Or Wanderer. If you're Roman, you call them after the gods. Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, Venus. And, for the red one, Mars, the god of war. But whether you're Greek or Roman, Babylonian or Assyrian, Macedonian or Chinese or Indian or Celtic or Mayan, you know that there's something special about these bodies. But what it is, who can say? Depending on the culture and time frame, there were a lot of ways to divvy up all the stuff in the sky. But let's focus for a minute on Europe in the 16th century. Because it's there that we eventually start to get things right-ish. For most of the 1500s, there were two categories of heavenly objects, stars and planets. What made something a planet rather than a star? Well, if it revolved around the Earth. In the early Renaissance, the going theory was that the stars were stationary bodies, but that all the other stuff was going around the center of the universe, i.e., us. That included not just Mars and Jupiter, but the Sun, too. Then Copernicus came along. By 1514, he'd figured out that the Sun was actually the center around which the planets and Earth were spinning. But, afraid that he'd be killed for this info, he waited until he was on his deathbed in 1543 to publish it. Turns out, his trepidation was well-founded. In 1590, Giordano Bruno put forward that the sun was actually a star, the Earth was actually a planet, and all the other stars out there probably had planets of their own, and even life upon them. The Catholic Church said, well, that's very interesting, but have you considered this possibility? And burned him at the stake. But the ideas of Copernicus and Bruno wouldn't die as easily as they did. In 1609, Johannes Kepler published Astronomia Nova, in which he laid out the results of his decade-long observation of Mars, which pretty much proved Copernicus was right, even if everybody, including Kepler, was slow to admit it. Kepler's boss, Tycho Brahe, had formulated a way to square the Ptolemaic system of the universe, with the Earth at its center, with the undeniable data of Copernicus. His model, through some very serious finagling, made it possible for Earth to still be the central pivot of everything else. It was a monstrously inelegant solution. But it had the not small benefit of not getting you murdered by the church, 
So most astronomers of the early 17th century decided to agree with it. Not Galileo Galilei, though. In 1608, Hans Lippershey, a lens maker, invented a tool for looking across long distances, the telescope. When Galileo heard about this newfangled doodad, he immediately recognized its potential for astronomy, so he built one of his own. Through his observations and maths, Galileo made Copernicus, Bruno, and Kepler's case even more irrefutable. So, in 1633, the church charged him with heresy, forced him to recant, and put him to house arrest for the remainder of his natural life. Why all this fuss? Well, in part it was because of the Bible. On four separate occasions, Psalm 93, Psalm 96, Psalm 104, and 1 Chronicles 16, the good book explicitly states that God firmly fixed the earth in place and that nothing can move it. Then there's the book of Ecclesiastes, which begins, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. According to heliocentrism, the sun doesn't hurry back anywhere. It stands still. Pretty big oopsie, inerrant word of God. But really, what made placing the Earth in the orbit around the sun anathema wasn't mostly about the Bible, or its writer, God. It was about that other author that Europeans worshipped, Aristotle. And hey, if you're relatively new to the show, welcome, hello, I, uh, hate Aristotle. He was wrong about virtually everything he ever said, yet for some reason, everybody in Europe, up to and including the Catholic Church, spent 1,600-odd years acting as the personal goon squad for a bisexual pagan. Fancy that. It was Aristotle's model of the universe that Europeans clung religiously to, not the Bible's. And Aristotle laid out that the Earth was the center of it all, and the only thing that could be orbited. Meanwhile, the stars were immutable and static. But by the time of Galileo, all of that was falling apart. Not only was there Copernicus and Bruno and Kepler to worry about, but even Tycho Brahe was making trouble. In 1572, he'd observed a nova, which lit up the night sky, and concluded it was a new star being born. Granted, he was exactly wrong about that. A nova is the death of a star, not the birth. But the brightness of the explosion made a previously invisible one suddenly quite prominent. And either way, you couldn't square the nova with Aristotle's static heavens. Galileo threw another wrench into the Aristotelian works, too. He got his telescope up to 60 times magnification, and with it, discovered three small objects around Jupiter in 1610. Within a few days, he observed that what he initially called fixed stars were circling around the planet. Jupiter had moons. That wasn't allowed by Aristotle either. For all their splashing, neither the church nor the Aristotelians could hold back the tide of heliocentrism. And by the 1680s, the fact that the Earth was just another planet like Mars circling the sun was common knowledge. Which meant, then, that the inverse was also true. If Earth was like Mars, then Mars must also be like Earth. All of the planets must be huge bodies, geographies just like ours. This presented an obvious question, with what the 17th century thought was just as obvious an answer. Q. Is there life on other planets? A. Of course there is. Why would God have made all of that real estate if he didn't mean to put stuff on it? That was a level of waste and inefficiency that Christians all the way up through the 1800s couldn't cotton. So yes, there was life on Mars, and Venus, and Mercury, and everywhere else. William Herschel, who discovered Uranus in 1781, even argued that there must be life on the sun. Still, there were no such things as Martians. Not in name, at least. Nobody had ever used the word, and there was no particular interest in or thought for Mars specifically as a home of life. That changed in 1877. Act two, hey, what's that? J. 
Giovanni Schiaparelli was a serious, dogged, and accomplished astronomer. In 1860, he started working at the Brera Observatory in Milan. Unfortunately for Giovanni, the scientific instruments available at Brera weren't the greatest. The main telescope was almost 100 years old. But Schiaparelli made do, focusing his work on things he could, like, you know, see and stuff. For a few years, he concentrated on meteors and comets and managed to discover the relationship between the two. He figured out and proved that the annual Perseid meteor showers are shed from the comet known as Swift-Tuttle. That was pretty big news and helped establish Schiaparelli as a major name in astronomy. He was named director at Brera and was able to procure a brand new, state-of-the-art, 218-millimeter MERS Equatorial Refracting Telescope. With his new toy, Schiaparelli wouldn't be relegated to comets anymore. He could finally do serious work on his real interest, Mars. In 1877, Mars and Earth were at their smallest distance from one another, and Schiaparelli went straight edge. He gave up all narcotics, alcohol, even coffee, so that he could be as steady and sober as possible when the still, clear night finally came for him to get the best possible look at the red planet. The best, closest observation yet in history. And what did he see? Something extraordinary. And extraordinarily difficult to describe without giving up the game. Giovanni grabbed his pens and paper and started to draw what he saw. Across the whole of the surface of the planet were long, dark, indents around spots of light, like islands in rivers, like channels, like canals. Here's where things get confusing. Schiaparelli called the paths he saw canali, which in Italian can simply mean channel, and most tellings of this story say that it was English speakers, and one in particular who we'll get to in a minute, who understandably mistranslated Schiaparelli's discovery as the more literal canals, inferring that they were built by intelligent life. But I think that's at least partially wrong. I've got to say, the weight of just how many writers and historians insist that canal was a misunderstanding have me doubting myself. Factually, it all lines up. Canal, I can mean either canal or channel. But what did Schiaparelli mean? I'm going to argue that he meant Something probably built these. But because this isn't a term paper, I'm going to forego a bunch of quotations and exhibits which support me and instead put it this way. If Schiaparelli didn't mean for us to think he meant canals, he certainly had a strange way of going about it. He didn't, for instance, clarify anything or correct anybody when folks all over the world started saying, wow, this guy says there are Martians building canals everywhere, which you'd think you might do in that situation. No. In fact, by 1882, Schiaparelli was explicitly arguing, along with Camille Flammarion, who played a big part in the episode We're Still Here back in our first season, that yes, they were quite possibly canals. Schiaparelli captured the public attention in a big way, less because of his writings than because of his drawings. His maps of Mars were so incredibly detailed, and the names he gave to its features were tailor-made to stoke the imagination. One of the waterways he called the Ganges, another the Euphrates. Still others took their names from mythology, the Lethus and Nepethys, which flow in Hades, and the Gaon from the Garden of Eden. With the news of his discovery, astronomers the world over turned their telescopes up to the sky to see just what he was on about. And, wouldn't you know it, many of them saw the canals too. More maps were made but they were at once confirmatory and contradictory. Yes, they showed canali, just like Schiaparelli did, just not the same canali. Every time somebody drew up the surface, the surface looked completely different, which is suspicious, no? Shouldn't all the maps look essentially the same, or at least similar? There were, it seemed to the people of the 1880s, two possible explanations for this. Either people were seeing things wrong, or the Martians were digging new canals. In came Percival Lowell. Lowell was a Boston Brahmin who graduated Harvard in 1872 with a degree in mathematics. 
With the world basically his oyster, he spent his life busying himself at whatever happened to catch his fancy. Throughout the 1880s, he traveled the Far East, serving on diplomatic missions to Korea and Japan, and writing books about Asian culture. He came back to the States in 1893 and got a wild hair about astronomy after reading Camille Flammarion's La Planète Mars, which ran on at length about Schiaparelli and the canals. In 1894, with all the money and privilege of a 19th-century American white aristocrat, Percival founded the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. Flagstaff was high up, regularly cloudless, and removed from big city lights, which did, to Lowell's credit, make it a pretty perfect place for stargazing. Or planet gazing, as it were. Because for 15 years, the telescope at the Lowell Observatory was trained almost exclusively on Mars. As the scientific establishment became more and more disaffected by the canals, Lowell stepped up to fill the enthusiasm gap. He published a number of maps and even a globe of Mars, which he crisscrossed with canals that joined at big, round pools he termed oases. He wrote three books, Mars in 1895, Mars and its Canals in 1906, and Mars as the Abode of Life in 1908. In them, he went far further than some tentative possibility of intelligent life. He claimed that the canals were clearly the desperate bid of an advanced alien species to irrigate their dying planet. Only the poles of Mars still naturally contained water, Lowell argued. So the Martians had no choice but to try to divert that water towards the equator to preserve their futuristic yet precarious society. Let's stop for a second. Because there's a big question here that's begging to be addressed. Just what the hell was everybody seeing? We now know, quite confidently, that there aren't any canals or channels or anything at all like them on Mars. But the majority of people who looked up through their telescopes did note these features. Sure, their maps might not have matched and they might have quibbled about whether they were natural or artificial, but they were there. On that, there was pretty broad agreement. So what's that about? The simple thing to do would be to chalk it all up to an optical illusion. That either the crappy telescopes of the 1880s or the crappy eyes of the human race have a tendency to connect small dots and points like mountains or craters into straight lines. As an explanation, that might suffice. But it's probably not the whole story. For one thing, it's worth noting that less than 10 years before Schiaparelli spotted his canali, everybody had set their own eyes on something else. The Suez Canal, which connected the Mediterranean to the Red Sea upon its completion in 1869. The Suez Canal was a stunning human achievement. It's more than 120 miles long, 255 feet wide, and 66 feet deep. It's little wonder that canals might have been on people's mind when we looked up at Mars then, and unsurprising that we'd pick those features as the ultimate sign of technological achievement. And once the expectation of canals was set, it was easier and easier to look up through our imperfect telescopes and see what we wanted to see. Besides, plenty of people who trained their eyes on Mars didn't see any canals. But where's the story there? Astronomer doesn't find canals on Mars is a terrible headline. By the time Lowell published his second book, he was basically blackballed from astronomical society. Serious scientists had largely rejected the canal idea, and their patience for the little rich boy and his Arizona observatory was at an end. But so what? Lowell just took his writings from scientific journals to newspapers, who were more than happy to publish him. With that, Mars fever really began. In 1880, Percy Gregg published Across the Zodiac, the story of a wrecked record, the first sci-fi account of life on Mars. A year later, an anonymous essay entitled The Year of Grace 2081, which imagined the state of mankind 200 years in the future, invented a new word. Martian. Martians really hit the big time, though, in 1898, when an English writer took Lowell's Martian life theory and extrapolated it outward to imagine a point at which the canals failed to keep Mars properly hydrated, and the thirsty, octopod aliens made their way to Earth to pillage water from us. H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds was both inspired by a great mistake and inspired a great mistake. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Act 3. Oh God, what's that? Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Orson Welles wasn't interested in creating a radio version of The War of the Worlds. According to John Hausman, he thought it would be boring. The earlier episodes of Mercury Theater of the Air were straightforward tellings, but a straightforward telling of Martians attacking England in the 1890s felt silly. So they moved the story to contemporary New Jersey, and then... Perhaps inspired by Ronald Knox's Broadcasting the Barricades, he decided to tell that contemporary story through contemporary means, as a news broadcast. Let me give you the quick cliff notes of the results. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. It begins so slowly. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. With just a couple of odd science bulletins. A red disc swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disc. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. Soon enough? Uh, Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. There's a meteorite in New Jersey. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene. Except it's not a meteorite. Ladies and gentlemen... This is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. But I can see if the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and the thing must be hollow. He's moving! Keep those men back! Keep those idiots back! Take off! The top's loose! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's calling someone. Oh, it's 
something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large, as large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face, it's, it's, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words and... Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. Ladies and gentlemen... Am I on? Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods, the barns, the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles are spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. With that, the broadcast goes dead. When the anchor returns, the war has begun. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, Surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. Oh, well, sounds like everything is going to be just fine then. Oh, wait a minute, I, I see something on top of the cylinder. Oops. Oh, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmot Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow, it's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. It's, it's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. More battles. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Protection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey marshes. Evident objective is New York City. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. More losses. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. Spraying us with flame. 2,000 feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Now the engine's gone. Eight. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Fire. Here 
can't see, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the rain. Until finally, the Martians reach New York. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Wait a minute, the... The enemy's now in sight above the Palisades. Five... Five great machines. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He... He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. Uh, a hundred yards away. It's... It's 50 feet. <sighs> 2X2L calling CQ New York. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? And commercial break. Hey, uh, why don't we take one of those, too? The Constant is brought to you by Care Of. Care Of is a monthly subscription service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. I'll be honest with you. I'm skeptical of vitamin supplements, so when I went to take their fun online quiz, I was gritting my teeth a little. But Care Of was ready for me. In addition to asking me about my diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, they also took stock of my suspiciousness about stuff like alternative medicines. From that quiz, they came up with a list of recommended supplements just for me, and for each one, they explained the science behind them down to how much research there was, how many test subjects there were, and whether the studies were placebo-controlled and double-blinded, as Benjamin Franklin would insist upon. I ended up choosing daily fish oil, magnesium, and probiotic supplements, because I have the GI tract of a very stressed-out 80-year-old. All of that is delivered straight to my door in personalized daily packs that make it really easy to keep up. On top of that, they've got a cool little app that reminds you to take your vitamins and gives you rewards for doing so. 90% of people fall short of FDA-recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. So go to TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code THECONSTANT50 at checkout for 50% off of your first month of personalized vitamins. A portion of every sale goes toward the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. And have I mentioned that the online quiz has the cleanest, coolest UI you've ever seen? It's just a million times more fun than any online quiz about vitamins has any right to be. So go try it now. Again, that's www.takecareof.com and enter the constant 50 at checkout for 50% off your first month. When the War of the Worlds returned, the news format was gone. Instead, Wells, as Professor Pearson, wanders around the smoldering ruins of the war, searching for life. 
When he reaches New York, he discovers that all of the Martians are dead, killed off by the common cold. Humanity reassembles. Life, uh, finds a way. Finally, there's this little afterword. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. You probably know why Wells decided to give that little speech, even though CBS told him not to, as they feared it was tantamount to a confession. At 8.37, CBS supervisor Davidson Taylor had given an order to break off the program and announce immediately over the air that the whole show was a fiction. He'd gotten a call minutes before, noting that listeners were taking the program very, very seriously. But by the time he told them to interrupt things, they were less than a minute away from the commercial break. So they announced it was all fake during the mid-roll even though when they came back on the air, the whole Radio Veritas angle was over anyway. Throughout the second act, more and more policemen descended upon the studio, trying to break in and stop the show, while employees of CBS held them back. When the story finally reached its end, the executives gave in, and cops flooded the recording room, shoving the cast and crew into a back room and locking them in. At 10.30pm, CBS aired an announcement. For those listeners who tuned into Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the Air broadcast from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tonight and did not realize that the program was merely a modernized adaptation of H.G. Wells' famous novel War of the Worlds, we are repeating the fact which was made clear four times on the program that, while the names of some American cities were used, as in all novels and dramatizations, the entire story and all of its incidents were fictitious. At 11.30, they aired it again and once more at midnight. Pandemonium filled American streets and cities. Traffic jams, riots, suicides, mass hysteria. Except, probably not. In 1940, Orson Welles and H.G. Wells were both in San Antonio, and Charles Shaw, a local radio personality, called them in together to do a joint interview. The first thing H.G. asked Orson was, Are you sure there was such a panic in America, or wasn't it your Halloween fun? Turns out, H.G. was probably on the right track. The reverse triple-double of the War of the Worlds broadcast is that the nationwide panic was yet another phony story. To be sure, some people really did freak out, and a lot more people than that were briefly, temporarily fooled. But for the most part, people got the joke. No, that's not right. For the most part, people didn't hear the joke. The Mercury Theater on the Air wasn't a very popular program at the time of the prank, and they were in a rough time slot. The most popular radio show of the era, The Chase and Sanborn Hour, was running against Orson Welles on NBC Red. But the Mercury didn't even have the second most popular show in its time slot. Or the third. Hell, they weren't even as popular as Father Coughlin, a Catholic priest and actual American Nazi. Furthermore, a number of networks around the country that usually aired Wells' show had foregone it on October 30th for local broadcasts. And a number of other networks that were set to air the episode the next day, understandably, did not. For the small number who did hear the show, most understood what it was. It was hard not to. After all, it started like this. Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the World by H.G. Wells. A pretty clear sign. Remember also that the last third of the thing totally gave up the news broadcast format. So all in all, that was less than 40 minutes in which to have gotten confused. 
And what a jam-packed 40 minutes. Armies are raised and beaten back. Cabinet meetings are called and held. The War of the Worlds is a brilliant piece of radio. But realistic, it is not. Even aside from, you know, the, the Martians. A poll conducted the night of the broadcast showed that only 2% of Americans had been listening to the program. And congressional records indicate that of that 2%, a very, very tiny fraction were at all alarmed. Most of them for only a few minutes until they realized that they were listening to a radio play about Martians rather than what they were really afraid of. News reports about Germans. So, wait then. Why does nearly everybody know the almost entirely false story? The newspaper industry. Just how it happened in England 12 years prior when Father Ronald Knox aired Broadcasting the Barricades, the newspapers of 1938 America saw the War of the Worlds incident as a prime opportunity to make hay of their most hated enemy, radio. Just hours after the episode concluded, the New York Daily News gave a full front page headline, Fake Radio War Stirs Terror Through U.S. Okay, so maybe there were hundreds of people that really were scared by the hoax. But there were literally thousands of newspaper articles and editorials about it. And they went on for weeks. Because the industry saw a perfect opportunity to ding up the coming threat to their business. With so much buzz in the papers, it was only natural for people's memories to start getting all fuzzy. Six weeks into the media blitz, the American Institute of Public Opinion did a survey that indicated around a million Americans had been tricked by the radio play. But that was more than twice the number of people who could have possibly been listening in total. The recollections of hundreds of thousands of people were being tainted by the coverage. By 1940, the legend was cemented as history, and the public fascination with Mars continued unabated. Movies and TV shows and books and comics. Sometimes the Martians were benevolent, sometimes malicious. Sometimes they were humanoid, other times they were giant insects or cephalopods. Occasionally, they were made of mist, or ooze, or gaseous clouds. The fascination continued throughout the 40s, all of the 50s, and even into the first half of the 1960s. Then, in 1965, almost all at once, it died out. On July 14th, the Mariner 4 spacecraft flew by Mars, initiated its cameras, and snapped 21 photos of the Red Planet. It was a momentous thing, our first close-up look at another world. Yet at the same time, how disappointing. There were, definitively, no cities or forests. And there were, we could finally say for certain, no canals. For decades, the world had been fascinated by Mars because there was some chance, no matter how small, that life resided there. But now we know, it doesn't. But wait, do we? Act 4. Seriously, though, what is that? In 1976, two landers touched down on Mars, Viking 1 and Viking 2. They were the first human inventions to land on another planet without breaking, burning up, or exploding. And they, too, seemed to back up the impression of Mars as a hostile, lifeless desert. They took photos, surveyed the landscape, and analyzed the soil and atmosphere. But they also looked for life. There were four experiments on board the Viking landers meant to check for alien biology. The first was the Gas Chromatograph Mass Spectrometer, or GCMS which was designed to measure the amount of organic molecules in the soil. When Viking 1, near the equator, picked up its soil sample and ran it through the spectrometer, it found nothing. A bit further north, Viking 2 ran the same experiment and got the same result. No organic compounds. Then there was the gas exchange experiment, or GEX, 
For Gex, the soil samples were placed into sealed test containers, and then the Martian atmosphere was vacuumed out and replaced with helium. Then some nutrients were dripped in, while a gas chromatograph sat above, looking for oxygen, methane, nitrogen, hydrogen, or carbon dioxide that might be released if something in the soil began to metabolize the nutrients. For Viking 1, Gex came up negative. Viking 2, same deal. Next up was what was called the pyrolytic release, or PR experiment. PR tested for photosynthesis by exposing soil samples to a mix of light and water, as well as an atmosphere of carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide to simulate the air on Mars. The gases, though, were marked with radioactive carbon-14. So after days of leaving the soil in this light water and gas mixture, the atmosphere was pumped out, the container was baked at 1200 degrees Fahrenheit, and the ground was dumped into a Geiger counter to see if it had absorbed any of the radioactive carbon. Viking 1? Nope. Viking 2? Nuh-uh. Which brings us to the last experiment, LR, or labeled release. The LR experiment was kind of like a cross between GEX and PR. The soil samples were collected, put into a sealed container, and then dripped with a nutrient solution marked with radioactive carbon-14. Then a Geiger counter was placed above the soil to monitor for radioactivity in the air, which, it was assumed, would only be released if something in the ground was alive, eating the nutrients and farting out radioactive methane. When Viking 1 ran LR, it was positive. But when Viking 2 did the experiment, well, that was positive too. Huh. Well, that's weird. So they ran a control experiment. They did the LR over again, but this time, before introducing the nutrients, they heated the soil up to 320 degrees Fahrenheit to kill off anything that could be living in the dirt. If the preheated soil came up with the same positive results as the first round, that'd show that there was some other chemical, non-living explanation for it. Which must be the case, because obviously there was nothing alive on Mars to account for things. So Viking 1 ran the control experiment. And negative. Viking 2, negative as well. Whatever had produced the positive results the first time around appeared to have been killed off by the heat treatment. But killed off implied it had been alive. And all the rest of the results, along with the common sense of the NASA scientists, indicated there couldn't be anything alive. Okay, let's try this another way, said NASA. Maybe whatever chemical process was responsible for the presumably false positives was being halted by the heat. So they devised another, less invasive way to try to kill off anything living without screwing up any less fantastic explanations. They took more soil samples, put them again in sealed containers, and then they isolated them in a pitch-dark vacuum for two months. Two months without sun, without air. Long enough to kill any potential alien microbes, but without disturbing the chemistry of whatever was really going on. When the two months elapsed, they again added the radioactive nutrients and waited to see the Geiger counter ding positive, proving once and for all that whatever was happening with the LR experiment, it wasn't life. Instead, Viking 1 was negative. And Viking 2, too. What the hell? Whatever controls and stipulations they put on it, the LR experiment continued to indicate that there was something alive on Mars. And whatever it was was very hungry and very gassy. But that was, at this point, impossible. 
Not only had the PR and GEX experiments come up empty-handed, but the gas spectrometer had shown that there were no organic compounds in the soil. There was no way there was anything on Mars to do the radioactive farting. Not to mention, there was no water. So, the guy in charge of the Viking biological experiments, some nobody named Carl Sagan, concluded that there was some unknown flaw in LR, and Mars was barren. But for some people, the case wasn't closed. For the next few decades, up until, well, now, really, scientists have been quietly trying to account for the LR results. There have been a few theories. Mars doesn't have much of a protective atmosphere, so lots of UV light from the sun hits the surface. Maybe it was the ultraviolet that instigated the reaction. That would account for the negative results on the sample that was put in darkness, although it's not totally clear why the heat control would have been affected. More importantly, both Vikings ran LR tests on deep soil that was buried way beneath the surface and that wouldn't have been exposed to UV rays. Or maybe there was some other chemical in the soil, formic acid or perchlorate or hypochlorite, that could have done the trick. But none of those explanations have managed to simulate the results found on the Viking landers. In the meantime, a lot of what we thought we knew about Mars back in 1976 has changed. For one, we now know that there is water there. And organic molecules, too. If that's not enough, in 1996, a meteorite from Mars landed on Earth and appeared to show evidence of microfossils from primitive bacteria, suggesting that at least at some point in the past, Mars did contain life. To this day, nobody has managed to replicate a false positive result on the LR experiment. But they have managed to replicate false negatives on all three of the other biology tests. In 1997, after 20 years of very cautious, very tentative, very fastidious experimentation and research, a scientific paper dropped. Gilbert Levin and Patricia Ann Strott, who designed and administered the LR experiment, came out to say, Yes, we found life on Mars. Levin and Strott aren't kooks and they aren't weirdos. And their papers on Martian life, there are now several, are careful and meticulous. Each of them have published many papers on many serious subjects that are very highly regarded and frequently cited. Each of them holds a number of patents on important drugs and chemicals. Yet, since 1997, they've been basically turned away by serious science journals. Their claim of life on Mars, as well-supported as it is, has gotten them, basically, blackballed. Just like Percival Lowell. We've sent more landers to Mars since Viking. Just two weeks before I'm recording this episode, the Curiosity rover, which landed back in November of 2011, appeared to have died. But it's back up and working again. But neither Curiosity nor any of the other crafts humanity has sent to our planetary cousin including the failed 2016 European lander named, wait for it, Schiaparelli, has ever retested for metabolizing life. However, on June 8th, 2018, NASA published an article in the journal Science, which showed that Curiosity had detected seasonal variations in the level of methane in the Martian atmosphere. After centuries of wondering, of theology and geography, of canals and invasions, of scientists being discredited, doubted, and burned alive, we may, in the near future, finally be able to say, for sure this time, that we know that there is life on Mars. Because we've seen it fart. Music for today's episode by Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, and Cecil H. Dill a farmer from Traverse City, Michigan, who in 1933 recorded this little ditty by means of hand farting. What an auspicious note to end our season on. We'll be back with more episodes... I, I don't know when. Soon. Make sure you're subscribed, or else you might miss us. And while you're doing that, go ahead and rate and review the show, if you'd be so kind. How'd you feel about this season? We did a really wide swath of stuff this go-around. Long and short, serious and frivolous. Some are more science-based, 
Others were just about outright cons, which I've promised myself not to do too much of. But what worked for you? What would you like more of? I really want to know. And the download numbers only tell me so much. So go find us on facebook.com slash the constant podcast or at our Twitter handle at constant podcast or head over to our website www.constantpodcast.com and let us know what you'd like more of or less of or well, whatever you want to let us know. Whatever it is you're looking for, I can't wait to give it to you. But until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the entirely fictitious Mount Jennings Observatory that, according to the War of the Worlds, first spotted the Martians leaving their planet, this has been The Constant. Mount? Mount Jennings? Come on, Orson. The closest Chicago has to a mount is a friggin' garbage dump. Uh, tell me, Mr. Dell, uh, how did you happen to discover this amazing talent of yours? Well, I'll tell you, Mr. Hagerman. In the year of 1914, in the month of February, I was coming home from school, and my hands got very cold, and you see, I had no mittens. And I began, of course, pressing them together to get them warm, and that wouldn't do. Well, pretty soon I began squeezing them, and I was surprised to think that I could make a few different sounds. Well, then I began playing every day, and pretty soon I could play Yankee Doodle clear through. And that was the only tune I could play for three whole years. And the next tune I could play was Marching Through Georgia, then The Trail of the Lonesome Pine. Then for about... Everybody wondered then how I could do it and would bother me so much that for about six years I put it away until I met a, an old showman that come up to Traverse once, and he said, Can you do your old novelty anymore, Cecil? And I said, I don't know, but I'll try. And I tried, of course, and it come right natural to me after letting it go for six years. He said, well, if I was you, he said, I would practice it up and see what I could do sometime in the stage when I was in Chicago.